you're listening to the Prodine Podcast, uniting minds across Britain. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Prodine Podcast. Um, today, uh, Chris and I recorded an interview with Karen Jones, former First Minister of Wales, obviously predecessor to Mark Drakeford. We talked everything from mental health, depression, um, his bid to uh, join the NEC, the Labour NEC. Then we went on to talk about um, the internal market bill. And then we had a broader discussion about is Britain or Britain as we know it, at least, is it finished? And then what is the kind of what is the alternative to building a stronger union union? Um, there was plenty of disagreement without uh, in a really civil way, I think it's fair to say, but I'm sure you'll enjoy. So um, here is our interview with Carolyn Jones. Uh, we are delighted, Chris and I, to be joined by um, the, the most esteemed guest we've had, I would say, on the podcast so far, former First Minister of Wales, Carolyn Jones. Karen, how are you today? I'm well, thanks, Charlie. Yourself? Yeah, brilliant. Um, gen- genuine thanks coming on the call. Uh, you're a you're a busy man, and we're going well, to just. It's nice to be remembered. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, I'm going to we're going to whittle through some things quickly. So, firstly, I want to ask about the book. How is the, how is the book going? I know you had a bit of a, a Labour Party call, members call. Um, yeah. Uh, the other day. Um, yeah. How is the book going? Book's going okay. Um, yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. I never thought I'd end up writing a book, but I was asked to do it by uh, by a publisher. It's a funny process, Charlie, to be honest. You know, you, you don't want something too long, you know, six, 700 pages, people aren't going to read. And then you go through the entire process, spend, you know, the best part of a year on it, and then you get a book an inch thick and you think, that's <laughs> I like. But you've got to balance out having something that's, re- I wanted it to be readable, not just a book about, hence, the, see what I did in the title, not just politics, but something about the, the personality. Lots of people know about the politics. They've, you know, I was first minister for nine years, but I thought, well, let's humanize it. Let's yeah. make it, you know, a book about uh, what went on in the background as well as the politics. Did you yeah. find it cathartic to be writing about your time in politics? It is. It's quite strange, you know, because you there are some things when, when it's when it's published. There's some things you think, oh, I should have mentioned that. But if you start doing that, you end up with a book that is five or six hundred pages long, and the people aren't going to read. But it's a it's a funny old process. You start thinking, well, this is a bit egotistical, you know, and um, but. People have bought it. Uh, people who come to me and said, well, we, it's not what we expected. We expected some weighty political tome that would say uh, on the 8th of March 2015, I did this. And the following day, I met this person. That's not what it was about. It was meant to be a book that was readable for people who had, you know, the most marginal interest in politics, as well as those people who, uh, who read it because that was their interest. I think it was um, very um, brave, if you don't know what you're saying, in terms of just opening up about kind of some of your own kind of battles with kind of um, men's mental health and, and depression and so on and so forth. Um, it's obviously, I, get, I, I, I believe in Bridgen, the area that you represent, that is an area in particular, you know, a few years ago at least, had a high suicide rate. What is the, you know... Um, yeah, yeah. What, what's the situation in Bridgend now in terms of like mental health and things like that? It, okay, one suicide is one too many anywhere in, in the world. Is it just a light here a bit so I'm not sitting in the darkness? Yeah. Um, we went through a phase a few years ago where we had a suicide rate that was higher than the Welsh average for young people. 
and it was picked on by either the media. Uh, and yeah, it was a very difficult time for people in Bridgen. But in the book, you know, I asked myself the question, do I want to talk about this? But if you're going to talk about leadership, you've got to show leadership, even when it's uncomfortable for yourself, because there are so many people who said to me, so many men who said to me, you know, I'm so glad you, you said that. Yeah. Because I don't feel alone anymore. And also I wanted to show that even at the darkest times you have in your life, you can still function. Yeah. It never affected my work at all. Never affected my ability to take decisions. Never affected my, you know, the way in which I met people or the way I acted in the chamber, but it affects you when you come home. And I think we've been far too quiet about men's mental health and, you know, saying, oh, come on, come on, have a pint, and we'll sort it out, we'll chat through it, and it doesn't work that way. And I'm glad that this is something now that's, that is being talked about. But also it's important to, to make the point that it's not something that necessarily lasts forever, yeah. <laughs> nor is it something that, that actually interferes with your ability to function in work. Because a lot of people yeah. think, you know, if you're depressed, it knocks you. For some people, it does knock you completely, mm. or for others. And I thought it was important to, to say that, you know, it, it was, I, I, if you're going to be a leader, you, you've got to you've got to do things sometimes, and not anymore. But you've got to do things sometimes that are uncomfortable for yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. In terms of my own experiences, work is often the distraction, and work mm-hmm. is often the the thing you can throw yourself into, and then um, and then all of a sudden you go home or you're on holiday or things like that, and then it kind of um, it comes crashing down, sort of thing. So um, I think it's a, a a point that a lot of people resonate with, especially, and then people then go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you had that. I, you know, I, I didn't know that about you. And um, yeah, and obviously um, NEC then, um, it does feel, Cowan, to be uh, the longer than the Lib Dem leadership campaign. How, how, how is the NEC campaign going? Well, it's hardly a stitch up, is it? It's gone on for so long. We will know who the US president is. Well, we, think, we hope we'll know who the US president is before we know who has filled the well seat on the NEC. But the, uh, the ballot papers, I think, uh, come out week Monday, that's the 19th. Mm. Um, and then we will know the results sometime in mid-November. So it's uh, it's a long old process here. Yeah. I mean, I, people have asked me, why are you doing this? You know, surely you've, you've done enough already. And yeah, I've got my reasons. For me, there's unfinished business. We don't have a Labour government in the UK. So that's, from my perspective, unfinished business. I want to... Um, I want to change that, but um, yeah, it was it was something I thought long and hard about. Do I really want to make this commitment? And uh, once I did it, of course, yeah, you know, the adrenaline takes over, and the momentum, small M, takes over, and uh, you throw yourself. <laughs> Good to clarify, small M momentum as opposed <laughs> to a uh, big M momentum. Um, just to move on to more of the meat of the conversation, then um, we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, the union unionism and things like that, the internal market bill. So. I, so it's, it's been quite controversial um, on two elements, I think, mainly on the European Union element of it and also the, the kind of the devolution settlement element. Um, the shadow business minister in the Labour Party said that we support a strong, successful internal market that underpins a vibrant, prosperous union with the ultimate arbiter of that market being Westminster. Is that a position that you take or is, is that a position that Welsh Labour take? What What is the if you take away the, the, the intricacies of um, the internal market bill, what is the Welsh Labour position on that? I can't speak for Welsh Labour, but I can speak for myself. I don't agree with it. I do agree that we need to make sure that we have a seamless internal market in the UK. And that's, that's perfectly sensible. The last thing you'd want is to see artificial barriers put up in terms of trade within the UK itself. I, I don't agree with the way it's been done. I think it should have been done by agreement and consensus rather than by one parliament telling the others what to do. I think that would have been better in terms of buy-in, but I don't agree 
that the UK Parliament should be the arbiter. If you're going to have a system of, if you're going to have an internal market, you have to have an arm's length independent arbiter who decides on what is and what isn't. For example, a breach of state aid. You can't, you can't have a, a political body doing it. Otherwise, people wouldn't have faith in it. So, yeah. One thing about the internal market uh, bill that, that you know, I think is, is the right direction is the creation of, a, of an independent body that will take that decision and make recommendations. I think that's the right thing. Uh, but this idea that, that the arbitration of the UK Parliament, I think, is wrong. And I, I don't agree with, with, that, with the view that was expressed, unfortunately, by the Shadow Business Secretary. Chris, kind of looking in as a, well, what, what do you make of the whole kind of debate and discussion and things like that? I, I can see some of Carlin's concerns about uh, the arbiter, uh, the independent aspect. Um, I do think about building consensus. The failure with that would be that when you look at the Assembly, the Assembly has been very dogmatic over Brexit. Um, you could say the same about the Scottish Parliament. It's not really got behind the idea of leaving the EU. Um, do you think there would be the movement then within those institutions to be prepared to work together, to come together for consensus? Oh, yeah, there's no question about that. Look, nobody I know, including myself, would want to rerun the referendum. The matter's dealt with. The matter's decided now. That's it. It's a question now of what we do beyond that. The, the problem is, of course, that Brexit doesn't have a model. Uh, you know, I would argue strongly that people didn't vote for a no-deal Brexit. They voted for Brexit. They didn't vote for any particular model of it. Uh, and yet that's sometimes been presented as, as what people actually voted for. But, you know, there's no point rerunning the referendum in 2016. We now have to deal with the situation we find ourselves in. And for me, it was always a case then of, of the different governments sitting down and saying, OK, how is the internal market of the UK going to work? Regardless of your view on Brexit, the internal market of the UK is important, the UK and to Wales. And having a properly functioning market where you don't have artificial barriers put up is important. For me, you know, I came through the, the I used to be on the JMC, Joint Ministerial Committee, and the, that had a, a formal dispute resolution process. The fundamental flaw with it was that the ultimate arbiter of any dispute was the UK government. So if you were in dispute with the UK government, the UK government decided the dispute. Well, that's not, that's not a proper system. Uh, and for me, that's it's important then that the arbiter of any dispute is somebody who's independent of all the governments. Because you know, if the UK government decided disputes, then it would always decide those disputes in its own favour, and the whole thing would start to fall apart. So that's important. But the second aspect of the bill that, that troubles me, and it, it should also be a matter of, of concern for Westminster as well, and that's this idea of equivalence. If you look at the bill, it says that the bill will not affect what is already in place. So any legislation that's already in place, it doesn't affect that. But if, for example, any one of the four legislatures in the UK decided to make a substantial change to legislation, potentially, uh, that would affect the rest of the UK. All the rest of the UK would be affected by it. So if Northern Ireland decided to, to, to for example, to pass a law uh, that... Uh, dealt with university access and how students would access university, whether financially or in any other way, that would then become a law across the whole of the UK automatically. You know, so it's not, the focus has been on you know, Westminster imposing itself. Well, actually, all legislatures can actually impose their own view on everyone else in the UK. Now, that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly sound basis of, of doing things. And also, you lose, you lose competence. So, for example, the, the, uh, the Senate has competence over... 
uh, university for over student finance. Let's say, for example, the Senate decided to alter the current package of student finance. Well, we all end up in court then, and the court would have to decide whether that was a substantive change in the legislation. And if it was, that would mean potentially that it would affect the whole of the UK and the Senate would never be able to, uh, to, to revisit the issue. You know, that, that it, it's, it's quite odd the way it's been drafted and there's a better way of doing it because the, the internal market bill at the moment to me is just a recipe for, for conflict. We'll be in court all the time because the courts would have to interpret this substantive change because there's no interpretation. There's no, there's no interpretation on the, on the face of the bill itself. That's, so this is a good, I think, constructive dialogue to be had on this. A lot of the noise, the political noise, has been around power grab. The, mm. the relief road has become uh, in, incredibly uh, topical. Um, it was a manifesto commitment that when you were First Minister stood on was to get the M4 relief road done. Then obviously it then became Mark Draper's decision. Um, on that point about the relief road, though, itself... Um, is do the people of Bridgen, for example, care about who actually you know? I don't know what the mechanism the UK government would use um, to construct it because currently I, I don't think there is one. But do the people of Bridgen, for example, really? I, I presume the relief road is something that the people of Bridgen would want. Would you say? Um, some. I wouldn't say it's a major issue uh, in Bridgen. I have to say. I mean, I mean nobody. You know, Let's face it, the current situation isn't sustainable. I mean, you know, nobody can argue that the current situation in the Bring Glass Tunnels is something that's sustainable in the long term. I, I wouldn't do that. I understand the decision that was taken because the sheer cost of it. I mean, bear in mind that the Treasury want VAT paid. Uh, they, they turn around and say, we want, you know, we want £400 million in VAT paid back to us, uh, which was a surprise. Uh, and that added to the cost of the relief road. But you're right to say the UK government has no power to build roads in Wales. It would have to, Parliament would have to give it that power. And leaving aside the politics of it, you know, the same thing happened with this, the proposed bridge from Scotland to Northern Ireland. Who builds the connecting roads? The Scottish government won't do it. Who then maintains the road? Well, the Welsh government wouldn't take over the maintenance of the road. Why would it? So all manner of you know odd things arise if you try and build something in terms of, you know, how, how does that work? I mean, for example, in Scotland, if you built the road, a road in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the UK government built connecting roads and maintained that road, which road traffic law plays? <laughs> What's the drink driving limit? All, all these things start to get very, very messy. And I think sometimes you just have to accept that a decision's been taken. There'll be an election next year. I've no doubt that the M4 relief would be an election issue. Of course it will. And people will have the opportunity to, to vote according to their, what their view is on the relief road. That, that to me, is the, is the proper way of doing it. Uh, and if people decided in Wales to, to vote for, to put in, in, uh, in power a party that wanted to build the M4 relief road, then the matter is the matter's dealt with, and the matter's been sorted. Chris, do you think this is just big, kind of hard talk by um, the UK government on the, on the relief road? Um, as Cameron says, there's an election next year. The UK government doesn't have the power to construct it. Are they banking on the Welsh Conservatives winning next year's election, which doesn't look likely going based on current polling? I think what it is, is Boris is determined to be seen to be doing more for the union. Um, if I'm right, has the title Minister for the Union. 
Um, I think this sort of grand infrastructure project is intended to show that there is a commitment from London towards the constituent parts of the UK. There's often a belief that England dominates the union at the detriment of the other constituent nations. So I think it's an intention to try and show that there is an interest, a desire to do infrastructure. At the same time, it's going to be used as a sort of political football, a sort of play up that there is an issue. Um, deliberately saying, well, look, the Welsh Government stood on a manifesto commitment to do this. They've not done it. And so it's being then used for political purposes as well. So I think there's a two-pronged uh, approach to it. Um, the mechanism to do it, I suspect, they would probably try under state aid. Um, I can see the merits of doing it in some aspects, but in other ways, you trample all over the devolution settlement uh, you don't know what to unleash when you do that. So it's a sort of catch-22. Aaron, do you want to come me, back on that? Yeah, no, for me, the, the ultimate judge on the performance of the Welsh Government is, is the Welsh people themselves, uh, not anybody else. And I, I agree with infrastructure projects. I mean, for example, if we look at the railways, you know, if Boris Johnson turned around and said, we'll electrify the main line west of Cardiff and electrify the North Wales main line, great. You know, I'm not going to argue with that. Uh, that hasn't been done. You know, Wales gets historically 1% of railway funding with 5% of the population. Now, that's not devolved. Uh, and that, you know, if he were to announce major rail projects in Wales, it seems to be politically, you know, in, a, in an area that isn't devolved, then that, that would be difficult to oppose, wouldn't it? But to, but to start a fight on an issue that, that is devolved is, is dangerous ground. And, and it makes it very, you know, it, it turns something into a Wales versus England fight if I can put it that way, which is in no one's interest, rather than looking at the issue itself. And you know, if, if, a, if a government doesn't deliver on a manifesto, pro, uh, on a manifesto promise, it's a matter for the electors to decide how they, how they view that. Um, just, just to come on to quickly, um, this matter of elections next year, we sort of referenced it. Will they go ahead? I know you've spoken out, Carolyn, in terms of uh, you want them to go ahead. Did you think that they might be postponed, or at least the Welsh Government... What's the mood music I like in terms of the debate about postponing postal votes? You know, are, are you privy to any information that you could share? <laughs> I think there is very little appetite in government for postponing the election. Uh, that's, that's all I can say, and certainly not from my perspective. It's not going to be easy. Uh, it'll be a very difficult election, but look, you, more than 10% of the members of the Senate were elected under the banner of another party. Now, that's not, you know, it's time for it, for, for it to be refreshed. You know, it's time for people to be able to express a view as to whether they want those individuals to remain in the Senate. That, you know, that's just not a, a healthy position to be in as a democracy. It's, it's time, you know, there needs to be a refreshment now of, of the Senate. It'll be five years in, in May. Do you, uh, think think be four, do you think it should be four-year terms? Because it was four-year terms, wasn't it, when, yeah. when you were... It, it's, it was four-year terms. Uh, it came into sync with Parliament, basically, in the Scottish Parliament. You know, it's either four years for everybody or it's five years for everybody, to my, for my mind. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's easier for, for the public to understand it that way rather than there, there being elections you know, for one Parliament every four years and another every five years. It's, it's got to be one rule for everybody. And then just let's, uh, some, let's just round off the conversation quickly. Um, you've been accused, Carolyn, I guess, since um, 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 stepping down from being First Minister, of becoming a bit more indie curious. Now, I don't know if the, you, you might want to crush some of these, these, uh, these, these conspiracy theories and so on, um, but, but 
you are you've become quite more outspoken i'd say on some of these matters in in recent years what what are you are you indie curious um what what, what do, or you know are you are you a unionist that is just genuinely concerned about it what what, what where is your head at well i'm not a supporter of independence uh, but nor am i a supporter of the status quo you know i, I find it difficult to call myself a unionist for reasons that i'm married to a belfast catholic and for her, unionist means man in a hat, in a bowler hat and a sash. You know, it's a particularly charged word in Northern Ireland that it's, you know, <laughs> that's had an effect on me. I would call myself a devolutionist. My worry is, I think the UK will fall apart unless we take steps to reform it and, and, and to keep it. You know, I, I, I'm not particularly keen on seeing it an independent. Well, as I've said to people, look, apart from the financial issue, uh, there's also the issue of access to the European market. People have said to me, well, look, we might be able to get a deal with the EU, it's better, or we might even rejoin the EU in time. I said, well, yeah, but you've still got to take your goods to England. You know, <laughs> the reality is geography dictates that you have to have a free trading relationship with England, if you want to put it uh, you know, crudely. So for me, you know, I think Scotland is on the way out of the, at the moment, is on the way out of the UK. And if Scotland leaves, what's left will start to become very fragile. And where the UK has been rigid in years gone by it's fractured as ireland will show you i mean ireland would, would have before 1916 ireland would have settled for a form of home rule within the uk but it was denied and denied and denied denied and eventually you know it, it just ended up as a republic and did that via a war of independence and a particularly bloodthirsty civil war as well that lasted arguably until 1995. so we don't want to go down that line clearly so for me i think we should look at other constitutional um arrangements. If we look at Canada, for example, you know, we, we talk about the, the wonders of the UK's unwritten constitution, but we never we never gave that constitution to anybody else. They were always written, we wrote constitutions for them. Canada has a system of pooled sovereignty. It's a prosperous, stable country, yes. Uh, Quebec, uh, one point, almost left Canada, but there's no uh, momentum now behind uh, Quebecois um, independence. And I think we could have a proper union of four nations where we talk more to each other, where we have a way of agreeing things, where we take a lot of the heat out and the grievance politics out of it. And we could do that by having a system of pooled sovereignty, for example, as, as Canada has done. But my great worry is if, if, we, if we keep what we have, eventually it will become so rigid it'll fracture. And we know from history that that will happen. Remember, the UK, under its current borders, is not even 100 years old. It's 100 years old next year. We talk about, you know, this is an old country going back, going back a thousand years. It isn't far from it. And that should be a lesson to us. Flexibility is hugely important in order for the UK to survive. And Chris, um, there, there is that argument, isn't it, that the union has always been flexible. And actually, actually, you know, people who are advocating a sort of a, a new system, a federal approach, are actually just following the path that the union always has done of evolution and so on and so forth. Do you think that you know a new approach to the union actually can keep the union together in the long run, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, or do you think it's inevitably leading, or do you think it further exacerbates the breakup? That's a curveball question, as always, Charlie. I think what it comes down to is how it evolves is ultimately the way it will survive. I think. In some aspects, devolution has created a viable framework for independence. If you look at Scotland, it has created, uh, well, it's led to an SNP government who have demonstrated to the public 
a capability to lead, which has then reinforced the idea that Scotland could be independent. When, when you had the independence referendum, people turned around and said, Scotland's not uh, strong enough to do it. Well, the SNP have been able to reinforce to the public that on a day-to-day -day basis, they run services, life goes on. And so the idea of independence is very real there because there is a viable framework has been put in place. Um, I've seen some of the Conservatives, uh, David Meldemeyer, erstwhile argument on uh, Twitter would probably go on this, but he's often advocating a new form of unionism, which is federalism. Federalism, I think, only would work if everyone entered on an equal footing. And I think if you looked at trying to do it now, England would dominate by size, so you wouldn't really reach the sort of equilibrium that you'd want from the outset. But then you would also require that the constituent parts to actually be part of it. And so if you were to present to Scotland, uh, stay in the UK in a sort of federal body or have independence, I think that if you presented that option to them, they'd take independence. Because the difference is that you're coming at it from a sort of, not from a ground zero, but you're coming at it later on. So when the United States was formed, it was the colonies wanted to be part of something bigger. But I think here you would not have that appetite now. And the point here, is there a point, Karen, in the sense of civic nationalisms that have been cropping up in Wales, Scotland, or, or even in, you know, people wanting Irish reunification. Are they absolutist creeds in the sense of they will not tolerate or accept the even the 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 evolution that you talk about in terms of how the union should evolve even that won't be good enough for a lot of uh, separatists i guess so did you fit or are you afraid or worried i guess maybe there's just quite strong adjectives that actually your argument actually gets lost in the middle somewhere and actually the the debate in wales is evolving towards two binaries that don't reflect wales at the moment of independence and abolishing devolution well i think you're right they don't reflect wales uh, direct rule or independence is not favored by the vast majority of people uh, nor would it be in scotland nor would it be in I mean, northern ireland it would, it would end up at war again if that would have happened and no one wants that to happen Bear in mind that Brexit, and I'm not arguing about Brexit anymore, but Brexit itself has changed the way people see politics. And the Brexit referendum was after the Scottish independence referendum, saying now to Scott, people in Scotland, well, financial issues, they'll say, don't care, don't care. People, you know, part of the problem with the Brexit referendum is that it wasn't a rational debate, was it? It was, it was a lot of name calling with people saying, don't trust experts. Well, that has ramifications. Because in a Scottish referendum, the same argument would apply. You know, taking control of our borders, money, and laws is you know that is a a portable uh, slogan, and the Scots will do the same thing. Now, first of all, I don't think we need to appeal to absolutists. You know, that trying to get absolutists on board is not what you know not where I am. I, I don't agree. Uh, what Chris has said that uh, given the choice between federalism and independence, the Scots would choose independence. And I think that's right, because if we accept that, then we accept that Scotland will become independent at some point. Uh, for me, I think people in Scotland would be, uh, would find attractive the idea of being able to chart their own course, being, as it were, sovereign, but pooling that sovereignty with others in the UK. Actually, that would work 
quite well. I mean, you have to explain it to people clearly in terms of because you know, free wills or you know, um, or Brexit are easy slogans. Trying to explain confederalism is not easy. To, you know, sort of, it doesn't trip off the tongue as easily, does it? But that's where we have to go. Uh, otherwise, we end up in a scenario where it's independence or nothing. Now, Wales is in a position now where Scotland was 20 years ago, where around about a third of the population supported independence. You know, 40% of my own party's voters would vote for independence. That's exactly where Scotland was 20 years ago. And the concern I have is it'll be where Wales is in 20 years' time, with Scotland having already gone. Uh, uh, and Chris is right, you know, England's very big, uh, but the United Kingdom, England, Wales and Northern Ireland doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, certainly on the present structure, and England will become very, very dominant. So we have to find a way of heading this off, of creating a UK for the 21st century, and keeping the best, the best aspects of the UK. So you know the the, the, the internal free market, the fiscal and monetary union, uh, the ability to work together for defence purposes. For example, all these things are positives to my mind, and you know, their independence takes that away from us. But we have to accept that, if, to my mind, I'm a bit older than you, that's, to my mind, the emotional attachment to Britishness has never been as weak in Wales. It was far stronger in the 70s and far stronger in the 80s. And part of that was because many, many people worked for the state. You know, people worked for the British Steel Corporation, worked for the NCB, they worked in nationalised industries. They had a real stake in the British state. The welfare state was more generous than it is now. And so in the 79 referendum, you know, people were saying, why, you know, the, the, the British state delivers for us. We have a stake in it. It employs us. It looks after us in a way that is quite the same now. And that's resulted in a weakening of, of I think, of British identity. And once you get that weakening, it, it, you need to do something about it in order to make sure that that identity just simply disappears in years to come and the UK goes with it. You know, the UK at the end of the day is a union like the EU. It's much older in terms of its links. Uh, it's much closer culturally, that's true, but it's still a union. And with all unions, or all countries for that matter, you always have to find a reason for them to exist. And for me, it's about saying to people, this is why the UK is important. This is why the UK has very many positive aspects, but it does have to change in order to reflect the century that we live in. Chris, the danger is, isn't it, that it's last orders for the union. It's 10 p.m. It's 10 p.m. or quarter to 10, whenever it is, for um, the union. Um, there's a point that Karen just made about the emotional <laughs> argument made for Brexit, that those arguments are now being deployed by nationalists. Now that Pandora's box has been opened, how do unionists actually use those weapons now that Brexit is, well, likely to be completely delivered in the end of the year, whether a deal or a deal or otherwise, how do you close Pandora's box? Or we, because I'm, I'm I'm comfortable with the Tim Unionist. How do we close the Pandora's box in allowing those those arguments that are being deployed by nationalists to not ultimately lead to the breakup, which many would say is completely inevitable? I would say some of the arguments they would deploy, you could deploy yourself. If you accept that the United Kingdom has evolved from being a political union to being a nation state, then a lot of the arguments that a nationalist could make, you could make yourself. So um, it's been interesting to see some of the Plaid Cymru AMs deploy some of the sort of Brexit arguments. You could easily use those to diffuse those arguments yourself if you were inclined to do so. I think 
the UK has to be able to make a case that's more than just about uh, the internal market, the um, defence. I've lived over the border. I uh, lived in Yorkshire for four years. And the only thing that really I found different from Pembroke Dock was the, the sort of love of rugby league, which never really uh, sit, would sit with me, really. But it's the sort of cultural connection is something that we have to build up. If you believe in the union, I think you have to be able to build up. It's a cultural uh, kinship between all four nation states and build that up. I don't think that the argument is to be one on economics. If you try that one, you'll find out that the UK will not exist very much longer because nationhood is a romantic notion that economics will never surpass. Final, th final thoughts, Carwin. Um, you know, um, do you think, um, you know, will we have a union in 10 years' time? The way things are going, no. Not as we know it, anyway. Uh, because I think Scotland will have gone. Uh, lots of people talk about Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland's more complicated than, than people you know, think it is. I know it very, very well. And even people who have, you know, bear in mind that almost half the population of Northern Ireland have no British identity at all um, and would resist it. Uh, and some of them would resist it violently. Uh, there is no common identity in Northern Ireland at all. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, you do have um, another large chunk of the population in Northern Ireland who, for whom a particular type of British identity is hugely important. And, and for many of the people who would see themselves as overwhelmingly Irish in nationality, and my wife's one of them, right? my wife would never consider herself British in a month of Sunday, she has an Irish passport, so do our kids. So they've got an, a, they've got an escape ticket for Brexit because they can, they can be able to live and work in 28 countries while they'll be able to live and work in two. But enough of that. And, but despite that, uh, they would not necessarily vote to to join the Republic. Uh, and what I've seen, you know, you start to see a development of a kind of Northern Irish identity, but it's very much based on, um, if I can put it this way, putting flags in the bin, because the Union Jack is just a sectarian flag in Northern Ireland, like the Tricular, like, like the Israeli flag, like the Palestinian flag, like the Saltire. There are, <laughs> there are flags are just sectarian symbols there. There's nothing that unites people. Uh, if you put the flags in the bin, then at least you get you can get people to talk to each other. So Northern Ireland is 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 quite a it's very different to here, but it's also not it's not, not simply a case of people saying, "Well, we'll just you know, we vote to unite with the South End, that'll be the end of it." It's, it's never quite that simple. And I don't think I think with Scotland gone, what's left becomes very very difficult. And bear in mind, we, we often talk. One of the traps we fall into is talking about devolution as if it was as it only affected Wales, only affected Scotland. We never look at it in the context of the whole of the UK, and in particular how it affects England. And one of the worries I always had, particularly in 2014, the Scottish referendum, is you know, the, the, one of the dynamics that drove Brexit was it was, a, was a chunk of English nationalism. And you can easily see that turning if Scotland had gone into, well, let's have an independent England then. Why are we stuck with these subsidy junkies in Wales? Why are we stuck with these you know, these odd people in Northern Ireland who like to shoot each other. You can see that kind of uh, mentality developing and, and then the creation of an independent England. And you, you end up with this, you know, something completely bizarre, something that we could 10 years ago would have been ridiculous even to, to talk about. But you then end up with a situation where Wales is independent, whether we like it or not. So all these strange things are set in train 
uh, if Scotland leaves. Uh, and then what's left? I mean, what do you call it? You can't call it the you know, Kingdom of Great Britain and all that because it's not Great Britain anymore. What flag do you have? You know, well, once if Scotland goes, really, it's game over as far as the UK under its current structure uh, you know, is because you'd have to develop something very, very different in order to uh, to maintain the relationship between the three nations. So the stakes are high. And for me, that's why it's important to put forward a, a positive model rather than let's keep things as they are uh, or let's be independent bluntly before it's too late. A fantastic conversation. Um, thank you both, in particular, Carwin, um, for, for joining us. Um, I think these are the, the civil conversations that we need to be having uh, across Wales. You can argue on Twitter. Oh, we'll, we'll be back fighting on Twitter later. Don't you worry. Nah, I'm off. I'm fed up with Twitter. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. I'll, I'll say something and that's it. But it's, it's pointless. The whole thing is a waste of time. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you both. Thank you. And there we have it. That was the interview with um, Carwin Jones and a good, lively discussion as well with with Christopher, as always, as well. Um, we've got more guests coming on in the next few weeks. Um, if you'd like to um, appear on one of our weekly reviews, then please just drop us a message on Twitter or Facebook. And also, if you want to pitch some pieces to us as well for the website, please do get in touch as well. That's all for this week. See you soon. For more from the Prodane Review, head to prodane.review on any web browser. Alternatively, check out at Prodane Review on Twitter or Facebook.